from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't like who I could. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, July 16th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. We've almost made it to Friday. It's okay if you've lost track of the days, though. Don't blame you. Enjoying the sunshine, at least. Jam-packed hour yesterday. The franchise deadline passing. And at least one big-name player, Derrick Henry, signing a deal with the Tennessee Titans. They agreed to terms on a four-year, $50 million contract. We'll discuss the details of that, including the guaranteed money. Also, where things stand with Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. They were unable to reach an agreement on a long-term deal, so he will play this season out under the exclusive franchise tag. Could he be starting his countdown for his last year, potentially last two seasons? In Dallas, also the rest of the names who were not able to come to an agreement, they'll be on the franchise tag in 2020. Also, at in this hour, the latest on Mariners summer camp uh, yesterday. We'll hear from Scott Service. It's all ahead right now. Let's get to your headlines. The Tennessee Titans and star running back Derrick Henry reached an agreement on a four-year $50 million deal that includes $25.5 million in guaranteed money. The Titans announced the deal yesterday but didn't disclose terms. It was a bit of a shock because the sides were not expected to reach a long-term deal by the 1 p.m. Pacific time deadline yesterday for franchise players. But this is 2020 after all, and as we all know, plans can change, right? Uh, yesterday, Lewis Riddick discussing the details of this deal, which uh, Henry's contract averages $12.5 million per year, makes him the NFL's fifth highest paid running back, trailing only the Panthers' Christian McCaffrey, $16 million uh, per year, uh, Cowboys' Ezekiel Elliott at $15 million, and Jets' Le'Veon Bell, $13.1 million. Plus, Texans' David Johnson, $13 million. Uh, Lewis Riddick on the details of Derrick Henry's deal. You've got you know, a bird in the hand. You probably better take it here, especially considering how the market is going to be flooded with available options once free agency comes around in 2021. For the Titans, I'm sure that they got this deal done on their terms. And number two, you know, just looking at it purely you know, from a football standpoint and not just purely from a, you know, a dollars and cents standpoint, they like the formula that they have going on down there in Tennessee. They like the combination of Ryan Tannehill throwing to get the lead and then Derrick Henry absolutely just putting you away with those second-half third and fourth quarter runs with that big body. They like that formula. It almost carried them to a Super Bowl. So I think they kind of like the nucleus of what they've got going on there. They've got a young up-and-coming offensive coordinator in Arthur Smith. Mike Vrabel's hitting his stride as a head coach. So I think this just kind of fits for both parties. For Derek, it's better than going out there on the free agent market. And for Tennessee, it's like, we like what we're doing. We like what we're building here. So I think in this particular situation, it's just going to work out best for both of them. Henry won the NFL rushing title with just over 1,500 yards, 1,540 last season. He posted consecutive years of more than 1,000 yards. And of all NFL running backs with at least 200 carries in 2019, Henry's rate of 5.1 yards per carry was the highest. 
Entering the AFC Championship game, this is a crazy stat, Henry had accounted for 69% of the team's total offense. Not bad, right? Uh, Since being selected in the second round out of Alabama back in 2016, Henry has rushed for just over 3,800 yards on 804 carries and scored 38 touchdowns. Adam Schefter, as I mentioned, kind of a surprise on this. It ended up happening yesterday. So how did the the pieces of this deal fall into place? Oftentimes, these deals come together at the last moment. And on Monday, these sides were not expecting this deal to get done. But last night, there were some discussions and some dialogue about a potential deal that could be a compromise for both sides. They talked all through the night into today. And sometime early this afternoon, Derrick Henry signed off on a deal that's probably a little bit below the top paid running backs in the league, but really offers him a great deal in a day and age where the free agent running back class of 2021 has the potential to be loaded. The draft class of 2021 has the potential to be loaded. There'll be a supply, a glut of running backs. And so Derrick Henry opted for the guarantee of $25.5 million today, signing that four-year extension that gives Tennessee the ability to sign Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill, both this offseason and retain their quarterback and running back. The Chiefs kept Patrick Mahomes and Chris Jones, and now the Titans have countered with their own answer. ESPN radio host Sarah Spain, Spain & Co., also talking about maybe the pandemic played a role in Derrick Henry taking this deal. It's possible that Derrick Henry might have wanted to push for more, right? Uh, This $12.5 million average per year makes him the fifth highest running back behind McCaffrey, Ezekiel Elliott, Le'Veon Bell, and David Johnson. Maybe he would say, based on on the numbers, he deserved more. But in a pandemic, you take what they give you because who knows if that money's going somewhere in the future. And so it feels like maybe this is a deal that both sides were okay with, at least during the current situation. How will this deal impact other running backs around the league? Courtney Cronin had some thoughts on that yesterday as well. As we move forward into the, this season and then thinking what the 2021 season is going to bring, the essential year of the running back, considering how many potential free agents we're looking at, the question is, does this help or hurt other running backs? And I think it only helps their case because the deal that he got, somebody who, you know, on a team like the Titans, this is the blueprint for their success with a guy like Ryan Tannehill who's coming off the best year of his career, a year year that he took them you know, significantly far in the playoffs when there was a quarterback switch midway through the season, they still need that run game to bolster what they're doing on offense. And they're saying, Derrick Henry, we cannot do this without you. Uh, we don't want to do it without you past the 2020 season. And they've got him locked up now on a four-year extension. Meanwhile, Dallas Cowboys and quarterback Dak Prescott not able to reach an agreement on a long-term deal by that deadline. That means the quarterback will play the 2020 season on the $31.4 million exclusive franchise tag. Prescott joins 11 other NFL players yesterday who uh, did not make deals by that deadline, who will end up playing on the franchise tag in 2020, including some uh, pretty familiar names, Cincinnati's A.J. Green, Jacksonville's Unique Ngakwe, uh, among that list, L.A. Chargers' Hunter Henry as well, Baltimore's Matthew Judon, and Tampa Bay's Shaq Barrett. Derrick Henry became the only player on the franchise tag to agree to a long-term deal Wednesday uh, when he agreed when he reached his four-year $50 million deal with the Titans. Green and Ngakwe were the only players who had not signed their franchise tenders. Wednesday's deadline did not apply to Arizona's Kenyon Drake. He was the only player designated under the transition tag, so he'll be permitted to negotiate with the Cardinals throughout the season. Since the franchise tag was implemented back in 1993, the most players to play a full season under the tag is nine. 
That was in 2009 and 2012, according to ESPN Stats and Information. Meanwhile, what's going on with Dak and the Cowboys? Uh, The Cowboys organization and Prescott's agent, Todd France, opened negotiations on a multi-year agreement this uh, in spring 2019, actually, but were unable to mm, reach any progress, close the gap on both sides to make sure the Cowboys have their quarterback in place beyond 2020. They haven't really had any significant negotiations since March when the Cowboys reportedly put out an offer worth $34.5 million a year uh, at the time would have been the second highest average for a quarterback behind our own Seattle uh, Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson and a guarantee on par with the 110 million given to Jared Goff down in Los Angeles. Prescott guaranteed that he would uh, be in be there for the start of training camp when he signed the tender on June 22nd. But even as the deadline approached this week, no sense of urgency to get a deal done with both sides still uh, locked in their positions. The Cowboys wanted Prescott to sign a deal of at least five years uh, in length, reportedly. But Prescott's side was countering and proposing a four-year offer. So what's the latest on those negotiations? Dan Graziano joining Golick and Wingo this morning to discuss. This time next year, they're going to end up in the same situation, which is, do they want to let him hit free agency or do they want to franchise him again? If you franchise a guy twice in a row, I'm sure you guys have addressed this, that you have to pay him 120% of his previous year's salary. So his franchise number next year would be in excess of $38 million. So they end up paying him close to $70 million over two years on two franchise tags if they can't get a deal done. Dan also saying that Dak will be in a stronger negotiation position after the season. If you get to next year uh, and you're talking contract, and you're Dak Prescott, and you say to the Cowboys, yeah, you can give me what I want, or I could just play on the tag, and you've got to figure out the rest of your roster around $38 million. You don't want to do that. So he's in a much better spot. This is I keep telling people, last year was the tough year. Last year was the year he played for $2 million. That was the end of his rookie contract, and that was the high-risk year because if he had gotten hurt or hadn't played well, he wouldn't be in the position he's in now. This year, he's getting 31.4. So... If if everything goes wrong, if something terrible happens, you know, first of all, he's got an insurance policy against it. And second of all, you know, 31.4 is a pretty good chunk to have in the bank. So he's in a, a much stronger position now than he was a year ago. And if he gets, I mean, if they when they get to the end of the year and they want to talk contract again, he'll be in an even stronger position because you're right. They're not going to want to carry that number in 2021. Coming up next on The Blitz, the MLB summer camp is underway. And wow, opening day is not that far off. We'll hear from Jeff Passan on his confidence level that a season begins. But one major league team is without a city to play in right now. That would be the Toronto Blue Jays. So what's going on with that and the implications for the rest of the league? It's next in The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, July 16th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Just about a week away from Major League Baseball returning and a week and a day away from the Mariners opening their truncated 2020 season in Houston against the Houston Astros. But before then, the league still has a couple of things to work out. Although Jeff Pass and ESPN MLB Insider yesterday on uh, on Sports Center, I believe, talking about that he's confident now that a season starts. I think a season's starting, and look, the the 
closer that we get to a season starting, I think the closer we get to a season finishing. I, I feel like this is not something that they want to start and then stop in the middle. This is not something that you want to invest the time, the money, everything right. in, only to get the playoffs taken away. So my confidence at the beginning of training camps was, you know, 50% we're going to get to a season. I'm about at 100 at this point. It's just going to take something, you know, a, a massive outbreak with a team that totally screws everything up. And so far, teams have been doing a pretty good job of following protocols. One problem, though, is the Toronto Blue Jays. They currently can't find a city to play their games in. And just a week out from the season, what's up with that? Buster Olney, ESPN MLB analyst, explain. The Blue Jays situation is a mess. Uh, I mean, we're uh, you know, just a little bit more than a week away from this whole thing getting cranked up, started up, and it's still unclear what's going to happen with that team. You know, yesterday... They met with officials, uh, health officials in Canada. They're having a conversation because, of course, Canada has a 14-day quarantine rule, which for a team going in and out on road trips is a real difficult situation. Uh, And it's unresolved at this point. And uh, a month ago, the Blue Jays were looking at possibly playing games at Buffalo. Then they ruled that out. Now they're looking at it again. Uh, you know, a health official in Canada yesterday suggested that the Major League Baseball schedule could be altered so that the Blue Jays could be home for an extended period and then they could leave for an extended period. And this doesn't even take into account all the teams that would be coming and going for short series. Scott Mitchell of TSN was detailing the laws in Canada that the Blue Jays face specifically. I think some of the some of the kind of the confusion down south south of the border was the fact that this is a federal government penalty, and the Blue Jays had to get a, a federal exemption from the government to come up here to uh, to skirt the uh, the quarantine rule, which is a 14 day quarantine rule, as well as uh, the closed border for for non essential travel. So. The, the Blue Jays kind of negotiated this through the federal government, through the health authorities, um, obviously taking the, the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, very seriously up here. So that is the max penalty uh, in terms of breaking the quarantine act. So that is $750,000 punishable as well, up to six months in jail. And the Blue Jays players were warned once they got up here that uh, they would be subject potentially to the max fine just because of how... Uh, it was negotiated, and the fact that the government made an exception for training camps to be held up here. So it's a it's a real uh, hefty sum, and it, it got the players' attention when they heard that, for sure. So where will the Blue Jays play? They're scheduled to open the season against the Rays, not at their home stadium. Their first home game, I put that in quotations as of now because it's still up in the air, would scheduled to be uh, against the Nationals on Wednesday July 29th, so still pretty soon around the corner, Jeff passing on possibilities for Toronto. I have no idea. And, and it's hilarious that we are tomorrow a week away from Major League Baseball starting, and the team has no idea where it's going to play. But that's kind of the way that this Major League Baseball season is going to go, right? Like, at any time, a governor of a state can say, we are shutting down, and baseball teams are not going to get exceptions. They're not going to have special dispensation in place, even though they're doing frequent testing and even though they've got a uh, you know reasonably stringent protocol in place. It's just I, I wish I had an answer, and uh, I feel for Blue Jays players who, uh, man, this is this is not an easy thing for them to try and pull off and to do so not knowing where they're going to be even more so. 
So still a big question marks up in the air, but so is 2020. Uh, yesterday, also the news that the 2021 Tournament of Roses Parade would officially be canceled due to health and safety concerns amid the coronavirus pandemic. The Rose Parade began in 1891, is held on January 1st every year ahead of the Rose Bowl game. And especially those in Seattle, those of us on the West Coast know the history, the storied history of the Rose Bowl Parade leading up to the Rose Bowl game. It will be the first time there will be no parade since World War II, organizers announced on Wednesday. Uh, David Eads, who's the CEO of the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Parade, on the timeline of canceling and and why that occurred. When the pandemic hit back in mid-March, we thought, you know, we're going to be in a stay-at-home order for a couple weeks. Uh, But obviously, as the pandemic uh, continued to spread, um, and obviously the loss of life and, and what we saw going on around the country, it really, you know, back in early April really kind of raised the red flag that we needed to look at what the future of the parade was going to be and would we be able to host a parade. And obviously we've been working since that time on the feasibility of doing the parade. And it really just came down to a point in time where, you know, based on the current restrictions and guidelines that are in place here as a result of COVID-19, it just wasn't going to be possible for us to host the Rose Parade coming up on January 1st. He did uh, go on to say that the Rose Bowl game, which is scheduled to host one of the college football playoff semifinals for the upcoming season, is still on the schedule at least for now. But college football facing uh, some big time questions in terms of their season, the viability of it, and if they potentially move it to the spring season. So that might change things for the Rose Bowl game as well. Coming up next on The Blitz, we get to hear from two of our favorites, two former Seahawks, both Michael Bumpus and Jake Heaps. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, July 16th. Thanks for hanging out with me this morning, bright and early. Got a little soccer on our television on ESPN. Meanwhile, right now we get to hear from two of our favorites, Michael Bumpus and Jake Heaps. Michael Bumpus up first yesterday, joining Bob Dave and Moore with a bold prediction that would land the Seahawks in the NFC Championship. Always fun to bring in this man for a conversation. He knows a thing or two about this game of football. Our buddy Michael Bumpus is here. Bump, how are you, man? I'm all right. How are you doing today, fellas? We're good. We're good. We were talking about, actually, we, we had something attributed to you on our show sheet here. Uh, Joe Fan posted a bold prediction yesterday. said uh, that uh, Lockett and Metcalf each post 1,000 yards receiving this year. You said if that happens, this according to Mora. Now we'll let you clear it up. But you said if that happens, the Seahawks will be in the NFC Championship game. Now between the two of them last year, they had nineteen hundred and fifty-seven yards, so they missed that mark by forty-three yards. So if they gain forty-three more receiving yards, championship game. Championship, Bob. Now <laughs> I say, <laughs> I say that I believe it, but I say that, and I also think that. With the defense being better and with guys staying healthy, you know, it's a it's a simple answer to really a broader scheme of things. I think that if they duplicate the year that they had last year, which they both they both pretty much had a thousand yards, 
um, they're going to put themselves in a good position because I like Philip Dorsett. I like the addition of Carlos Hyde. I think Rashad Penny's going to be okay. I think Chris Carson's going to be okay. Then you always have Russell Wilson. So, yes, that's one piece in getting these guys to the conference championship, and I say that, and it's hard to say on Twitter, right, because only have so many characters to put your stuff out there. But um, <laughs> if you look further underneath the conversation, I specify with someone else who responds, and I go, look, I think the defense is going to be better. Um, and I, I say a couple other things. But, yes, if these guys can go over 1,000 yards, I think they have a chance to have an opportunity um, to play for a Super Bowl it, with all other things considered. Bump, what if it goes along with no rusher over 500 yards? Maybe it means that they're terrible and that they had to throw the ball a ton because they were always behind. You know, I also think that <laughs> if they do throw the ball a ton, they still got a chance. They, you know, I know. And, and let's okay. I'm, no guy, no guy over five hundred. So let's get let's give Carlos four fifty. Let's give Rashad three fifty, uh, and let's give uh, let's give, give Carson five hundred. You know, it could be by committee. I'm good with that, Dave. There you go, DJ Dallas maybe. The rookie, Dallas, yeah. maybe he gets oh. three four hundred yards. No, that's good. Um, yeah, I was just uh, trying to let the air out of the balloon there not very well but uh anyway um let me ask you this bump bob asked me a great question um dk metcalf what you see from his game and bob you know his question was you know what where can people kind of get to him i mean after kind of like with you know big league hitters you know after one year you you figure out a guy's swing or same thing with a pitcher uh, or defenders, because my answer was that he's so big and he uses his body so well. I don't know, even if people do kind of figure out his game, I feel like he makes a lot of really good contested catches. He's really good at, like, varying his speed and breaking away at the end. What do you see from DK Metcalf's uh, game? And I I'll ask you the same question Bob asked me. Is there is there anything, is there a hole there that uh, the defensive backs could possibly exploit? Yeah, um, I love DK's game. I think that he proves a lot of people wrong. You know, they thought he was a one-trick pony. He was only going to run goes and posts. And granted, he did a great job doing that. But he also ran some slants, caught some tough footballs, ran some crossing routes, some shallow. So he did more than what I think most of us thought he was going to do last year. I didn't think he was going to put up the numbers that he yeah. did. With every receiver, with every football player, Dave, you know, there's there's a weakness, right? Everyone has their weakness. And it's up to that individual to look at the film and say, I'm going to work on this weakness. Now, if I look at a DK Metcalf, a big receiver, a big receiver, and he's not like the most flexible receiver, but he's still a good big receiver. That's not a knock on him. That's just the way his body is when you're 2% body fat. I mean, it's tough to be super flexible, right? So um, yeah. if there was something that I think DBs will pick up on, it, it would be how to make him adjust his route in the middle of the route. So say like he's running a post and he's breaking at 10. How do I mess up his rhythm around five or six yards? Because when teams are bailing and they're giving him that space to work because they respect his speed, it's easy for him to get on the straight line, hit his mark at 10, and head for the post. Now, if I'm a DB, I'm going to play games with him. I'm going to line up at six or seven. I'm going to walk down during the snap. I'm going to I'm going to drop in, drop into a deep coverage. I'm going to give him different type of looks to make him adjust on the fly. And that's what you do to kind of mess up a receiver. You make him adjust on the fly, and you won't necessarily mess all of them up, but it will make them adjust their timing a little bit. So that's what I would do if I were a DB. That was Michael Bumpus on with Bob, Dave, and more. Also yesterday on that show, Jake Heaps joining the guys to discuss about the Chiefs' recent moves, whether signing Patrick Mahomes or locking up Chris Jones and 
why he compares that to the Seahawks. It makes him feel like the Seahawks might be missing their window. Uh, we've got Jake Keeps on with us now. Jake, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks, guys. It's good to be on with you. And You're miss you guys. big trouble. Uh, hope all is well. I, that's trouble, what I heard. I, here's the thing, guys. I, I stopped the show. I'm mowing my lawn. And I'm getting a few texts my way going, man, the afternoon guys are, are giving you the business. And I was like, oh, man, what, what's going on? <laughs> so um, so I just, you know, hopped on for real quick. I listened to, uh, I think, the second half of it. And, you know, I, I love it. I love that we can come on, have our differences of opinion. And, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully by the end of the segment, I, we, we still love each other. Right, Jim? Yeah, well, <laughs> I love you, Jay. We'll let's let's. I, lo- we will. I, I love. I love the too. cooking people. I can't get. I can't get enough of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Jim, I Jim, want more cooking. Jim always throws out the uh, "I love you" before he bashes you at the knees. So so buckle up, <laughs> Jake. But let me. I love for, it for people that don't know what we were talking about. You sent out a tweet yesterday that said the Kansas City Chiefs make me feel like the Seahawks are missing their Super Bowl window. At some point, you have to simply go for it. The Seahawks have been making it to the final table through a conservative approach, and at some point, you have to be willing to go all in. And then you had a, a gif of a guy playing poker. So what? And, and then I want to get to some of the responses in a minute. But when you say they have to go for it, they've got to be all in. Are you talking about bringing in that big name, that difference maker, free agent? Are you talking about turning the offense over to Russell Wilson? What, is, what does that look like when you say they need to go for What's it and be all in? A relationship with a, a yeah, that's a good question. Is, is, is I think for me, in that moment, when you have the Kansas City Chiefs, they signed back Chris Jones, it seemed like something that was very unlikely. It just seems like you have a franchise that has set themselves up pretty nicely, even with massive contracts that they've you know forked out to multiple players, and they seem set up and primed and ready to to really compete uh, for a Super Bowl every single year over the next, you know, two, three years. Um, And so you look at the Seahawks, and I I think that it it leaves you wanting. It leaves you wanting them to make, you know, uh, a a bigger move uh, on the other side of the ball um, or, or, you know, on either side of the ball, I should say. And, yeah, I think a part of that equation is also leaning into your quarterback a little bit as well and um, and, and coming up with, with different uh, strategies from 2019 and learning and growing in, in 2020. And I don't think those are things that aren't happening. I, I would be surprised if they didn't look at 2019 and say there are things that need to change. Um, and I would hope so. You know, we had Dave on earlier on our show, and there's, there's definitely things that, that concern you. Um, I'll just give you guys uh, one stat here, and I did some research here real quick. In the past decade, okay, in the past decade, the Super Bowl winners, there's only been two organizations that have won the Super Bowl that had a point differential under 100. Surprisingly, one of those teams of the New Orleans Saints uh, in, 20, uh, in 2010, I was surprised to see that they were one of those teams. And the other one was the Baltimore Ravens. Now, the Baltimore Ravens had an extremely uh, good defense that particular year. But every other team, okay, eight out of the, out of the ten years were teams that had a point differential uh, well over 100. And the Seattle Seahawks, when they went to the Super Bowl two years in a row, one, uh, one they won and the other one they didn't, they were well over that point differential. So when we talk about how great it was that they won – you know, so many close games. It was. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and it was entertaining and it was, you know, it was cardiac arrest almost every game. And sometimes that's, that's awesome as a fan. But when it comes to, um, winning the Super Bowl as, and it's extremely difficult, 
that stat right there goes to show you that you have to be more than just winning by the skin of your teeth at times. And I guess I sit there, guys, and I leave it to you, open to you guys, as to what moves this offseason have they made that makes you feel confident that they are going to turn that point differential around in, in a drastic way. That was Jake Heaps on with Bob, Dave, and more yesterday. Coming up next on the hot list, maybe at least 20,000 spectators were allowed in the fans for NASCAR's all-star race yesterday. What does this mean for potential sports this fall? Uh, plus winners and losers at the deadline, the franchise deadline yesterday. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! We've gotten to hear a little bit about how life in the NBA bubble is and a couple of players accidentally breaking or inadvertently breaking quarantine protocols, uh, one for just stepping outside of the lines to pick up a food order, but also there's a tip line, which is now being referred to by a lot of people as the snitch line. Uh, where players, coaches, other people can call and report potential violations of the health and safety protocols. Rachel Nichols of The Jump on how the tip line works. The snitch line certainly been a main topic of conversation here in the bubble. And of course, we know of two players who crossed the campus line for what might seem like something innocuous, like picking up food delivery, but that's actually pretty serious. That is a bubble breach that could bring the virus in from outside, which is why both those players got the max punishment, which is 10 days back in quarantine. The violations that are largely coming in through the tip line is stuff more like not wearing a mask in the right place, for which the NBA is reportedly more handing out warnings. You got to remember, the manual for these safety protocols, Kevin, is more than 100 pages long. So at least right now, there seems to be at least some understanding that getting everyone on the same page about the smaller rules is going to take a little while. Of course, you know, Doc Rivers wasn't going to miss an opportunity here. When asked about the hotline, he said, are you kidding? I turned in LeBron yesterday. I turned in Pop today. I'm trying to turn all those guys in. He said, we are going to be the last team left when I am done. So, hey, you know, Kevin, you got to do what you got to do. Jackie McMullen, ESPN senior writer on worrying about the tip line. I understand the need to police and maybe self-police a bit among the players. Here's what I worry about. What about using this tip line as a competitive advantage? And I do think this, and I've said it from the very beginning, the bubble will be penetrated because money talks and these players have more money than most of America, most of the world, and they will pay to get what they want. And if that means sneaking someone into the bubble, it's going to happen. Let's be realistic. The Washington Mystics announced that reigning MVP Elena Deladon is on their roster, but will also be paid her salary this season, even if she does not play. Deladon was recently denied a medical exemption for uh, this season, for the WNBA season, because uh, even though that she has an immunocompromised system based on the effects of Lyme disease, uh, the 30-year-old was anticipating receiving a medical exemption that guarantees players their full salaries if they're deemed high risk regarding the potential impact of coronavirus. 
uh, but was but ended up being denied. It made a lot of waves this week. She spoke candidly with SportsCenter yesterday after writing about her situation for the Players Tribune, but uh, talked about how she hoped her status as a player wasn't the basis or basis for denial. I, I'm not sure, um, and I really hope it didn't. Um, I would hope they would treat me as player X and they see that I've been treated for something for nine years. They've seen my blood work. I submitted everything. Um, so I really hope that wasn't the reason why this happened. I hope it's doctors just still being unaware of Lyme disease and not having Lyme literate doctors on that panel. Um, because I don't want to believe that that's what happened, but (laughs) unfortunately it might be what happened. Didn't want to believe that her being a star, being a reigning MVP, was one of the reasons that she was given that denial. She also talked pretty candidly about what she goes through on a daily basis just to be able to play the game she I mean, loves. I take 64 pills a day, and throughout the day um, I'm taking these. I know taking that much medication every day probably doesn't have a great effect on my long-term health, but... I love the game of basketball. I found a protocol that sometimes works for me and enables me um, to play. Uh, But I think I'm just going to have to be way more open about my treatment, which I've been private about because, you know, medical things, you're not always open. Uh, But I think people deserve my honesty um, and deserve to see the fight that I go through to just have a normal life, let alone be on a basketball court. She also said that people don't know as much about Lyme disease and she wants to help change that and will make her decision on whether to play or not this season soon. I think it'll be pretty soon. Um, This isn't a decision I want to drag on and um, it's not something I want my teammates to have to worry about, my organization. I want this, you know, us to move on from this, but um, it's going to take a couple days for us to figure it out. Her head coach, Mike Thibault, a Mystics head coach, saying that he supports her and her health, whatever decision she makes. The 2021 Tournament of Roses Parade has officially been canceled due to health and safety concerns surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. The Rose Parade began in 1891, is held on January 1st every year ahead of the Rose Bowl game. It will be the first time there is no parade since World War II. Organizers announced Wednesday, David Eads, CEO of Pasadena Tournament of Roses Parade yesterday on with ESPN on the timeline of canceling that parade said this decision wasn't taken lightly and there's definitely financial implications for that community. We do economic impact studies every every three years and our, our last study showed that on an annual basis with both the parade and our football game, so not just the parade, but the parade and the football game annually have an impact of more than $200 million in direct investment here in the Pasadena and Southern California area. So it's significant, and that's annually. And so this will have a great impact on, again, as as companies try and recover here in Pasadena, especially restaurants and hospitality industry that's been impacted by COVID. If you try to get a hotel room in, in Pasadena on New Year's, they're sold out. And, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people that come to Pasadena to see the parade in the game, and, and, and that won't happen this year. So it is a huge economic hit for our community. Everybody pretty much going through that right now, though. Rose Bowl game, though, still on the schedule. It was scheduled to host one of the college football playoff semifinals for the upcoming season and still on the schedule, at least for now, according to David Eats. Right now, we're hopeful that we do have a, a, a Rose Bowl game. But again, this will not be our decision. There's lots of discussion going on right now with the, the viability of college football this fall. Everybody from conference commissioners to university presidents to athletic directors 
So the CFP are really working to ensure, again, the safety of student athletes and their ability to uh, hold a college football season this fall in a safe manner for everybody. So if there is college football this fall and if they are able to complete a season, uh, then we stand prepared to host the Rose Bowl game on, on January 1st or whatever date. So it really won't be our decision. That'll be the decision of others. It'll look much different. Um, it could be a game with limited fans or maybe no fans, but obviously to a large television viewing audience, you know, the return of college football would mean a lot to a lot of people on New Year's Day. Speaking of that college football season, Heather Denich, ESPN college football reporter yesterday, speaking about how college football could approach even practices differently. She was on Golik and Wingo, actually, and, and discussing that. I talked to Navy coach Kenny Matalolo not too long ago, and I said, how do you actually practice football during a pandemic? And he said, Heather, we might not practice team drills at all. It might be like a, like a, a stage performance that everybody practices individually and you, you, you don't actually put the play together until your first game, which for them is against Notre Dame. And I thought that's really interesting, but you coaches have got to think outside the box as to how you practice, again, if they get to that point later in August. Brian Kelly, Notre Dame head football coach, whose schedule has been altered quite a bit with the announcements that have come from a couple of Power 5 conferences that they were going to stick to and play just conference games so far this year. Uh, But Brian Kelly still confident that football will be played. I think like everybody has talked about, everything is on the table at this point. So I won't won't get into the specifics because I don't know that anybody really has a great idea of what it looks like. I know there are some models out there. Uh, certainly. But um, I think what Jack is saying in particular is that the models uh, of the uh, professional uh, teams will give us a better understanding of uh, are we going to delay this uh, and try to play it in the fall or do we certainly have to just scrap it and, and then begin putting together something for the spring? Because look, at the, we're going to play football this year. Uh, it just depends on when we're going to play football. Still some optimism there from the Notre Dame head football coach. Up to 30,000 fans were allowed to attend NASCAR's all-star race at Bristol Motor Speedway on Wednesday night, marking NASCAR's largest event with spectators since the uh, coronavirus pandemic shutdown in March. And attendance figures were not released, but it appeared that at least 20,000 spectators were socially distanced throughout the grandstands, likely making it the largest sporting event in the United States. Uh for a while, for a while now, for a couple months now. Chase Elliott won the race. IndyCar raced last weekend at Road America in Wisconsin. There was no limit on the tickets sold to that event, but crowd estimates were around 10,000 spectators for that uh, and uh, around 20,000 yesterday for the All-Star, the NASCAR All-Star race. The Tennessee Titans and star running back Derrick Henry reached an agreement on a four-year $50 million contract that includes $25.5 million guaranteed. Titans announced the deal Wednesday, didn't disclose terms. Sides were not expected to reach a long-term deal by the deadline, the franchise deadline yesterday, 1 p.m. Pacific time. But 2020, the year of unpredictability, plans change. How did the pieces fall in place, according to Adam Schefter? Oftentimes, these deals come together at the last moment. And on Monday, these sides were not expecting this deal to get done. But last night, there were some discussions and some dialogue about a potential deal that could be a compromise for both sides. They talked all through the night into today and sometime early this afternoon. Derrick Henry signed off on a deal that's probably a little bit below the top paid running backs in the league, but really offers him a great deal in a day and age where the 
free agent running back class of 2021 has the potential to be loaded. The draft class of 2021 has the potential to be loaded. There'll be a supply, a glut of running backs. And so Derrick Henry opted for the guarantee of $25.5 million today, signing that four-year extension that gives Tennessee the ability to sign Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill both this offseason and retain their quarterback and running back. The Chiefs kept Patrick Mahomes and Chris Jones, and now the Titans have countered with their own answer. Henry's contract reportedly averages $12.5 million per year. That makes him the NFL's fifth-highest paid running back. He trails uh, Panthers' Christian McCaffrey, Cowboys' Zeke Elliott, Jets' Le'Veon Bell, and Texans' David Johnson. Henry winning the NFL rushing title, which is over 1,500 yards last season. And I love this stat. Entering the AFC Championship game, Henry had accounted for 69% of the team's total offense. Yeah, so a big part of what they're doing there. Uh, The Dallas Cowboys and Dak Prescott, though, unable to reach an agreement on a long-term deal by Wednesday's deadline. The quarterback will play the 2020 season on the $31.4 million exclusive franchise tag, joining 11 other NFL players who will play on the franchise tag in 2020, including A.J. Green, Cincinnati, Denver's Justin Simmons, Jacksonville's Unique Ngakwe, whose name has been thrown around and discussed with some possibility here in Seattle. Um, Also, L.A. Chargers' Hunter Henry in that mix, Baltimore's Matthew Judon, and Tampa Bay's Shaq Barrett. Derrick Henry became the only player on the franchise tag to agree to a long-term deal Wednesday. We knew that Chris Jones and Patrick Mahomes had signed earlier. Green and Ngakwe were the only players who had not signed their franchise tenders. And Wednesday's deadline did not apply to Arizona's Kenyon Drake. He was the only player designated under the transition tag, so he's permitted to negotiate with the Cardinals throughout the season. Meanwhile, uh, discussions with Dak Prescott and their camp stalled. Uh, Reportedly, Cowboys wanting at least a deal of five years. Dak and his agent pushing for four and not getting the kind of traction, not being able to meet in the middle on that. So in this position next year, and in Dan Graziano's mind, Dak will be in a stronger negotiation position after this season. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.